take your Bibles with me and turn to John chapter 17 as we begin our time tonight, and I'll ask you to bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight, for this opportunity once again to be together and to be challenged by your word, to be informed about how you love us and care for us and always are doing what is right on our behalf for your glory and our good. And so tonight, Lord, as we learn of you, as we learn of the intimacy between the Father and the Son and how you have prayed for us, how that can comfort us and bring us great joy in the midst of this place in which you have allowed us to live for a time. Lord, we ask your blessing upon it that you would help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we find ourselves once again in John chapter 17. And of course, I've entitled this message or this series of messages, Nothing Better. And I said last time, I think, that there's nothing better than to realize and to know that Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, would go to the Father in prayer for us as Christians. I mean, when you ponder the things of creation, those are absolutely unfathomable and amazing things. And yet to think that the Creator would actually pray for us even ranks above anything that He's ever made, I think. That God would actually Himself, incarnate, pray for us. And as I am sure is true of you here tonight as well as it is of me, I'm so thankful when someone comes up to me, a brother or sister in Christ comes up and says that they are praying for me. I'm sure it's true for you that when someone comes to you and says, I'm praying for you because I know that God cares for his own in a special way. God cares for us in ways that are special in comparison to the ways in which he just simply cares for creation in general, for those he loves. And he loves when we come to him with our concerns about others. He loves when we come to him with concerns that are concerns on our own heart about our own life. And it brings an even greater joy, I think, to know that Christ brings his concerns for us before God the Father. He intercedes for us, as we heard this morning in Romans chapter 8. And so as we read John chapter 17, we read it, or at least we should read it, as if it's a personal letter about us, a personal letter to God the Father on behalf of us personally, so that what is being asked for and what is revealed here so that it would encourage us in our own Christian walk. Uh, this is Jesus Christ going to God the Father with personal, intimate requests concerning us so that our walk in this world and that our faith in Him would be, in fact, strong. And that because we believe in Him, we would have a enduring life even here and now. And so it's again a joy for us to be really discovering together just what it is that Jesus is asking the Father on our behalf. And as I said last time we were in this chapter and studying in John, we began 
this a couple weeks ago, and we saw that Jesus is making four specific requests. Four requests in his prayer. One is on behalf of himself, not in a selfish way, but on behalf of himself so that, in fact, God would be glorified in him. And the other three are specific requests for us, the true Christian, his sheep, his own, those who are his. And, of course, we understand he is speaking directly to the Father concerning his disciples that were with him, and yet not them only. Because verse 9 clearly tells us that uh, I ask on their behalf, but, but there's others that I have, right? There, there's you and I. So in this prayer is the reality of you and I as well. I ask not just for them, but verse 20, but for those who will believe in me through their word. And so that's you and I. We are believers because of the disciples whom Jesus Christ has sent out. And so he makes these requests for us. And he asks that he be returned to the glory that he had before the world ever began in verses 1 to 5. And we saw that. He asked that in order that God might be glorified. And we looked at that in detail several weeks ago. And then we said, secondly, that he asked that our faith be guarded. That our faith be guarded, verses 6 through 16. And I want to continue in that tonight. Uh, in dealing with this whole idea of faith. There's two others that we'll see over time that uh, he asked that we be made holy in practice or I asked uh, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, he says, so sanctify them in truth. Verse 19, verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. This idea of being made holy in practice, sanctification, Jesus asked for. And he also asked that we be brought to glory just as he planned in verses 24 through 26. But I want again to look at this second one that we were given, the second specific petition. And I want to look at the details surrounding it. And what I'd like us to think about as we look at it tonight surrounds really this whole idea of faith. The whole idea of faith. This is guarding their faith, right? I I want you to guard their faith. That's how I've uh, kind of encapsulated the whole subject matter of verses 6 through 16. I want you to guard their faith. And by faith, I mean the entirety of salvation. The entirety of salvation. And the question that I have been caused to think about recently surrounds this question. And here's the question. How do we know, how do we know, or, or how do we rightly judge if someone is a true Christian or not? How do we know, or how do we rightly judge if someone is a true Christian or not? Now, I know as soon as I ask that question or I present that question to us, uh, some may be quick to answer that there's no real true way to know if Someone is saved because salvation is an issue of the heart. And since you cannot see the heart and God's the only one who can see the heart, we really cannot know and we really cannot judge. And there is some truth to that kind of statement and that kind of thinking. That we cannot see the heart. I don't know the heart of someone, but God knows the heart. We look on the outside, God sees the heart. 
But that still does not remove the reality that at the very least, when we consider as Christians, particularly let's just think about the church, when we consider the church as a body and we consider people for membership in the church or some aspect of engagement in ministry, someone for some kind of leadership position in ministry, there is a need for us to make some kind of decision. There is a need for us to make some kind of judgment as to someone's profession of faith. We're doing that right now in our membership class here in this church. And so even though we cannot see the heart, even though that's what God looks at and we can't see that, that doesn't remove the requirement for us to make some kind of evaluation to answer the question. And of course, we also know from our study of scriptures here in this church primarily but through your own Bible studies as well, that there are certain things which, if someone is doing them, doesn't necessarily mean they're saved or not saved. For example, just because someone has an emotional experience to the things of Scripture, just because someone has some kind of emotional outward uh, response when, when the gospel is shared or when they read a per- piece of Scripture, so that their own personal feelings are engaged in such a way that they have this emotional reaction to the things that they are reading. And they are convinced that, that whatever they went through and, and, and the fact that they were emotional when they heard the gospel, that it's a real thing. And yet none of those kinds of things verify salvation is real, do they? You cannot say that because you had some kind of emotional response to the Word of God, that because of that emotional response that you are truly saved. Why? Because feelings are subjective. Feelings are subjective. They're directed by all kinds of different things. In other words, feelings come and go. One person may feel that they are truly a Christian one day and on the very next day not feel very much like they're a Christian at all. You ever have those feelings? You ever have feelings like that? In fact, some of you right now, just by this very discussion, may start to have feelings that maybe in your heart you aren't actually truly saved. So if my feelings are the very things that I make my judgments by as to whether I'm a believer or not, then I'm in trouble because my feelings tend to be filled with all kinds of error. Also, we could say that we cannot tell someone is truly a Christian just because they belong to a church, right? Just because someone attends church services, someone's regular in a church, someone goes to religious activities or some religious group that they are a believer. And I think both of those seem to be rather obvious to us, at least here in this church, because we we talk about it from time to time, and even on a regular basis. So how do we tell them? How do we tell? Well, I think we get the answer to that question by how Jesus describes his disciples here in this prayer. And so I want us to focus our attention on verses 7 through 10 tonight as we consider and continue to think about Jesus praying for our faith to be protected Because I believe he describes just what it looks like in his people. Just what faith looks like. 
Let me just read for us verses 7 through 10. Now they have come to know, he's talking about the disciples, praying to God the Father. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Because the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you did send me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Now I trust as I read that, that you heard and understand that the only way to tell that someone is a Christian or not is to see if they are believers in and continue in the words of Jesus Christ. They are believers in and continue in the words of Jesus Christ. And all of that comes to us from verses 7 and 8, but most of it is in verse 8. Last time we really dissected verse 6. Tonight I want to hone in on this aspect really honing in on verses 7 and 8, but primarily verse 8. Because you remember from our last study that Jesus clearly showed us in his prayer just how it came about that any of us came to know Jesus Christ at all. And it really parallels what we learned this morning. Remember what he said in verse 6? We were gods, not us being little gods, but we were the possession of God the Father. And God gave us to the Son, and then the Son obeyed completely what the Father had given Him to do by showing us who God is, and we kept or obeyed what He told us. That's really the idea of verse 6. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So you were gods, you were given to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ gave you the word, and you kept the word. So from the perspective of God, when it comes to our salvation, that's how it can be explained. That's how we can view our salvation. We were gods, we were given to the Son, the Son obeyed, we kept the word. That's the idea. Christ is revealing God to us, and we obeyed the gospel. But here in verses 7 and 8, we get a look at salvation from what happened by way of action with us. Not from God's perspective, but really from our perspective. And you notice that Jesus gives us four parts. Verse 7, he says, we hear the words of Christ. It's piggybacking on verse 6. He says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. We hear the words of Christ, and we know it's from God. That's what verse 6 said, that you gave them to me, they have kept your word. So that's the first thing. We hear the words of Christ. And we'll, we'll get into these a little deeper as we go. Secondly, we receive the words of Christ. We receive the words of Christ. Verse 8. The words which you gave me, I gave to them, and they received them. Also, verse 8 is the third one. We understand the words of Christ. And they 
truly understood that I came from you. And then lastly, we believe the words of Christ. And they believe that you did send me. Now, there is a sense in these words that the final three in this list are really an explanation or a, a great further explanation or a greater explanation of the first. Verse 7 says, They have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And verse 8 seems to explain that further. How did, they, how did that look in action? Verse 8 is how it looks in action. So in one sense, we need to understand that there's no real salvation without receiving the truth. There is no real salvation in any of us without receiving the truth, without understanding the truth, and without believing the truth concerning Jesus Christ. So we need to know that. When you hear the words of Christ, you receive the truth, you understand the truth, you believe the truth. So here again is another reason why you and I as Christians can dogmatically stand on the truth that without Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. Without Jesus Christ, no one is saved. All the other religions in the world who have nothing to do with Jesus Christ have no salvation. And those who claim to know Jesus Christ but do not accept the Jesus Christ as he has explained himself in the Scriptures have a false Jesus. They may spell it the same way. They may use the same letters. They may even say that he is God. It's a different Jesus, not the same Jesus. So everything circles around and is in and through Jesus Christ when it comes to true salvation. So how then does this happen in true disciple? How does this happen? The first step, if we could separate them as steps, The first one is the hearing of the Word of God. Now, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you for the words which you gave me, I gave to them. The hearing of the Word of God. Now, what does Jesus specifically mean by that? Well, I think he means the gospel, the gospel in its fullest sense. Everything there is about himself. The gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's why Paul said it. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. That's why Jesus says what he says In verse 8, the words which you gave me, I gave them. There's no salvation without that. You have to hear the words of God. So we understand, not just from other places in Scripture, but from the words of Jesus Christ himself, from the words, from the mouth of God himself, that there is nothing else in the entire world that has the power of salvation other than the words of God. We could even say that the gospel is the tool of God unto salvation. The gospel is the tool of God unto salvation. And so we hear Jesus saying that. I gave them the words that you gave me. Jesus didn't tamper with the message. Jesus didn't adjust the message. 
Jesus didn't try to soften the message. Jesus simply gave them the words of the Father. And so I think we must never forget that this, what this is saying to us, what this is implying to us as Christians. It's just telling us that it is through the gospel that we have been saved. And it is the gospel of God. It is God's gospel. It's God's gospel. God the Father gave it to God the Son, and He gave it to us. So implicationally, we better make sure that we give only that gospel to others. We don't give a gospel of our own manufacturing. We don't give a gospel of our own making. We don't give a gospel of our own adjustments because it is only the gospel of God that saves. So we have to understand that when we speak to others concerning the gospel, that it's not a conversation of us trying to do our best to persuade them to believe. When we go and tell others the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we share the gospel with others, it's not us trying to convince somebody else that they, you've got to believe this. I've got to convince you. I've got to try to persuade you to believe this. It's not our job. Our best persuasion would never be enough to save anybody. Our best argumentation is never sufficient. It's not enough. Sure, our reasonings have their place. God even reasons with us, but it's God through his word that saves. I always think about this when I think about evangelism. I think, boy, you know, if, if, if we have to come up with some kind of clever way to ensure that my evangelism is so perfected and so persuasive that someone can't wiggle out of any argumentation I make and that that will be the very thing that will convince them to believe, then I always think back to Jesus and I say, then why didn't people believe him? Because certainly on my best day of persuasion and my best sales pitch I could ever make when it comes to salvation could never even reach anywhere near the mark of God himself. And yet many people didn't believe. So listen, our persuasion saves no one. You know why? Because salvation's a miracle. Salvation's a miracle. God makes us alive through the gospel. And so that's the first thing. We must hear the gospel. And therefore, the second thing here happens. Jesus says here in verse 8 that they received them. What did they receive? They received the words that I gave to them. They received the words of God. This is, like we talked about this morning, the effectual call of God. And so right here, Jesus Christ is showing us once again this idea of the decrees of God taking place in action in the hearts of people whom He's chosen. I gave them your words and they received them. That's an exclusive group. Remember, he's simply talking about the disciples here, and yet he says even, I don't ask on their behalf alone, verse 20, but on the behalf of those who will believe me through their word. Well, it wasn't their word in the sense that they had some kind of word inherent in themselves by which saves, but their word that they're passing down that they received from Jesus, that Jesus received from the Father, the gospel. Receiving the word carries the idea, as we say sometimes to our own kids, 
what they have not done when we've told them to do something. We say, my words went in one ear and went out the other. Right? Well, that's the idea here. To receive the Word of God is to not let it go in one ear and out the other. That's to receive it. In other words, a person whom God is saving is a person who doesn't just hear the words of the gospel. They receive them. They receive them. Someone can hear the words of the gospel. And they can go in one ear and out the other. But to receive them is to have them sink into the soil of their mind and their heart. They receive them. It's like the illustration I used this morning of the husband and wife. The wife received the call. The husband didn't think it was for him. And so the gospel is to be preached. And the gospel is to be received. And then Jesus says, thirdly, the gospel they understood. You notice that in verse 8? The words which you gave me, I gave them. They received them and truly understood. They truly understood. Now listen, salvation is not an anti-intellectual faith. That right there tells me it's not an anti-intellectual faith. Some people say, oh, it's just blind faith. It's like clueless faith. It's like irrational faith. No, there is no such thing as that. That's what many throughout the the, uh, ages have sadly tried to proclaim concerning saving faith, that it's just irrational. It makes no sense. Those who have denied it argue that idea. But here from Jesus' words, that couldn't be farther from the truth. No one is saved without first thinking about, with understanding, certain truths. You're not saved until you think about it. They truly understood it. That's thinking. That's what makes saving faith an intellectual and rational faith. That's the difference between it being rational and irrational or anti-intellectual. I was reading recently, late, uh, late James Montgomery Boyce, who used to be the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he described it this way. He said, does faith need reasons? More specifically, do we need reasons to undergird our faith? And do we need reasons to present that faith to others? And he said, quote, on one level, the answer to these questions is no, if, By them, we are asking whether all doubt must be cleared away before God can save someone. But on the other hand, knowledge does play play a role in faith because faith is commitment to one whom we have come to know through the witness of the gospel. You see, we have come to know someone through the witness of the gospel. The object of our faith is a real reality. Not an irrational kind of unknown. It is a rational reality. And we've come to understand that. And so I hope you, you hear what I'm saying here. Faith is commitment. It is commitment to one who we know through the witness of the gospel, and the witness of other people who are telling us the gospel. In other words, the gospel is preached, and we receive what is said, and we know from that truth about the one whom we need to be committed to. That's the idea. So what did disciples come to know? 
What did they understand? Because that's what it says here. The words which you gave me, I gave them. They received them, and they truly understood. Well, what did they come to know? What did they understand in this message? You notice what verse 8 says. Jesus says they have come to know, or they have come to understand, notice, that I came forth from you. That I came forth from you. So listen. Listen, family of God in this church, brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to this carefully. In the context of John 17, Jesus is saying that a person must have a conviction about Jesus Christ and who he is before faith is active. You hearing what I'm saying? You must have an understanding, a conviction about who Jesus is before faith is active. The disciples were given the words of God and they received those words and from it they were convinced that Jesus Christ came from God the Father, which means that they were convinced that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. He is God. Listen, I want to say this as in the clearest way that I can say it. If you claim to be a Christian, if you profess to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, one of the deafening proofs that you are truly saved is whether you have a conviction about the deity of Jesus Christ or not. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? The deity of Jesus Christ is a demarcation line between true Christianity and all other false religions. Who is Jesus Christ? I remember years ago, being at Grace Church in California under the ministry of Dr. John MacArthur, and uh, he had written a book, or several books at the time, and uh, some people in the Mormon religion had gotten these at, at Brigham Young University in, the, in their school of religion there and, and was enamored by what he said. And so this, this professor who was over the head of that religious group wanted to bring all of his professors out to Grace Church so they could hear Dr. MacArthur preach. And they wanted to meet with him afterwards to talk about their common faith in Jesus Christ. I remember it. They were all sitting there in the front row of Grace Community Church. All these religious leaders from Brigham Young University. Amazing. He preached his guts out, and then he met with them. And they said, well, we, we're, just, we're just really uh, thankful that you would meet with us and want to just talk about our common faith. And he said, well, tell me who Jesus is. And they said what the Mormons typically will say. Well, he's the son of God. And John said to them, well, let me just help you understand something. We, we don't worship the same Jesus. We don't have a common faith because you don't believe who Jesus is. Jesus is God, and you don't believe that. So there's no way we're on the same page. There's no way we have the same faith. Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, is the demarcation line. What you believe about Jesus Christ will tell whether you're saved or not. All of the damning religions of the world diminish or deny completely the deity of Jesus Christ. 
Catholic Church diminishes the deity of Jesus Christ, that salvation comes through means of a a co-redemptrix called Mary. The Mormons don't even say he's deity. The Jehovah's Witness don't care either way. They just want to inherit this world. I always take him to 2 Peter and say, read that, because God's going to destroy this world. If you want to inherit it, go ahead, but it's not going to end well. Every true Christian knows. Every true Christian is convinced. They are convinced. Every true Christian has a conviction that Jesus is God, that he's God in the flesh. They understood, they truly understood that I came from you. This is the exact problem with the Pharisees. Jesus kept telling them, I and the Father are one. I came from the Father. The works prove it. My words prove it. John the Baptist proved it. The Scriptures claim it. And you refuse to believe it. That means that we have a reasonable faith, folks. We have a reasonable faith. Why? Because we have a real God in whom we believe. He's a real God. That's why Peter encourages the Christians in 1 Peter chapter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that lies within you. You know why we have a reason? You know what the reason is for the hope that lies within us? Jesus Christ, who is God. That's the hope that lies within us. That's the only right answer to that very reality. He's the reason that we have hope. Because He's the only salvation there is. He's God. Came to earth so that we might live a perfect life in Him. So that He who lived the perfect life and died the undeserved death, that those who would trust in Him would have eternal life. That's reasonable faith, not blind faith. Therefore, all true Christians are rightly called believers. Believers. That's the final point that he makes here. And they believed that you sent me. Christians are believers. They hear it. They receive it. They're convinced in their heart about who Jesus is. They believe it, which means they actually follow after Christ. They follow in action. They obey. That's the idea. They hear the word, they receive the word, they understand who Jesus is, they believe, they follow, they obey. And so we can see that true Christianity is not simply someone who intellectually just assents to some level of idea. Some fact about Jesus and about heaven and about sin and, oh, I don't really want to go to hell. No, true Christianity is actual belief. That's why I say here, he's praying that God would guard our faith. That's what they have. They have a faith in him. And that faith is seen in a change of their life. Because true faith always involves action. So if someone says that they believe upon Jesus Christ as their Savior but there's no drive in their life to obediently follow after Christ, then we're just left with a question in our minds as to whether they're actually saved. Right? That's, that's really what's taking place in our membership class. 
And we talked about it this morning, even in our membership class, right? And we, we, we simply were just trying to say that, that, that we want to hear your testimony. And so we've had some people who have gone through membership class who give some kind of intellectual assent by way of testimony that seems like it's real, and yet their life shows that they weren't real. Well, let's see your life. How are you living? That's the question. How are you living? See, people can easily profess to know Jesus, but the outworking of their life is going to quickly show the validity of that claim. How are you living? This is why it's so amazing back in John 10, when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. I touched on this this morning, but it's just so deep in my mind. You do not believe, which means that they may have heard, but it went in one ear and out the other. They certainly didn't receive it. They didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand that he came from the Father. Why? Because you're not my sheep. You don't believe because you're not mine. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, verse 28, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How are, how is a person living? How are they responding to confrontation when it comes into their life about sin? How are they responding to that? That's what we're called to do in the church. That's what we're called to do in the family. When someone is joining the church or we're interacting with one another, we hear a testimony of their faith. And then they're used by God to hold them accountable to that proclamation. That's the reality of it. When someone stands in the waters of baptism and shares their testimony, they're saying, this is what God has done to me. Now, help me walk according to this proclamation of faith. You've heard it. You've witnessed it. I'm proclaiming it. Now watch my life. And in time, most are found to be true because they strive to live following Christ. Sadly, as we have seen in, even in our own church and our own body, some show themselves to have been self-deceived as to their profession. You say, how do we know? How they're living. How they're living. And that's why we say Christian living is a direction of life, not a perfection of life. It's a direction. That's the true Christian. Therefore, Jesus could pray about them and he could pray about us as those who are his. They received my words. They have known who I am. And they believed me as their Savior. We may not all be in the same place in the Christian life. We may not all be in the same maturity level on that road to Christian life. But that is how we all got on the road. That's how we got there. We all got there the same way. We heard the word. We received the word. We understood who Jesus is and we believed it. Real faith. Real reasoned faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it is those and only those whom Jesus is praying for. That's why he says, 
in verses 9 through 12. I'll just read this. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. He says, I'm only asking for those who are yours, those who are mine. I'm only asking for the Christian. That's who I'm praying for. I don't ask on behalf of the world. This isn't a general prayer for the world. I'm not praying for them. But those whom you've given me, because they were yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world. Yet they themselves are in the world. I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them. This is the idea. Keep them in your name. Right? Guard their faith, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you had given me, and I guarded them, and no one, not one of them perished except the son of perdition. He's referring to Judas, just so the scriptures would be fulfilled. He's not saying that Judas had salvation and then lost it. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that Judas was raised up for the glorification of Christ in that reality by denying him into the hands of those whom God had predetermined would kill Jesus Christ. So, Father, glorify me so that you are glorified. And, Father, guard their faith. Guard their faith. Jesus Christ is praying that the Father would guard your Why? So that God might be glorified in us and that we would be proclaimers of the gospel. There is nothing better than that. Nothing better. Well, that was kind of a speedy tour through through that, but I hope you gained some understanding of how you got there. I hope it piggybacked on what you heard this morning. And I hope it married up well with what we heard last time from God's perspective in verse 6. and How God has saved us. God is praying for us. Christ prayed for us. Now Christ intercedes for us. What a joy it is to know that our faith is being guarded by the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for protecting us, guarding us. What a overwhelming privilege it is to know that in the words of Jesus Christ here to you some 2,000 years ago, even before we ever were a thought in the reality of time, we were a thought in your mind. And that even now, even though the world hates us because we're not of the world, just as Christ was not in the world, even though we're not that, Lord, we know that we are protected from the evil one because of the prayer of your Son. That you will protect us, that you care for us. And what a joy it is to know that. So we thank you for giving us this glimpse into the wonder of the communion of the Father and the Son, that we might know the security of our own faith and be able to understand how to differentiate what is true faith and what is not. What we believe about Jesus Christ says it all. 
So we thank you for that tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.